For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, learn about the traditions of Ramadan from a Tucson family. The king of sting, entomologist Justin O. Schmidt, gives us a summer insect forecast. And Beth Surdit shares a story about getting a little closer to nature than usual. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The Muslim holy month of Ramadan ends this weekend. Guided by the Islamic lunar calendar, the timing of Ramadan changes each year. Part of its observance is fasting from dawn until dusk, a practice intended to foster qualities including patience, reflection, and a sense of humility. Another important element of Ramadan is doing something to help others in your community. Last week, Andrea Kelly spent an evening with a Tucson family, as the sun sank in the sky and they prepared for iftar, the evening meal that breaks their daily fast. Hello. The Ahmed family of five relax in the late afternoon. It's almost the end of Ramadan, and tonight they've invited friends over to join them for iftar. It's typical to break the fast with friends and family. Matriarch Razia says fasting is about paying attention to what the body and the spirit need. So Ramadan means to clarify ourselves and to clarify our body and do good deeds, which we try to do it whole year long anyway, but this month of Ramadan is when our Holy Quran was revealed as well. It started revealing, so it's a very sacred month for us. She and her husband, Uber have three kids. My name is Wali Ahmed. I am Zain Ahmed. My name is Hadi Ahmed. And they're active. All three went to soccer camp this morning, in the heat, on a fast. Yeah, I just go on my normal routine. I try to take things a little easier, like not running around too much, not going outside, try not to. At 8 o'clock, I went to a soccer camp for four hours. It wasn't easy. I didn't work that much. I was trying to stay easier and like take a lot of breaks. And then when I got home, I took a shower, and then I studied. And the plan was to take a nap. But I didn't. I didn't. Razia says kids aren't expected to fast until they're old enough for their bodies to handle it. So that means if Hadi, the youngest, who is nine, wants food or water, he gets it. But for teens and adults, Uber says it's a way to shift your focus. The fasting gives us an opportunity to be more careful in our daily routine and things which we normally do can be controlled and it gives you an opportunity to control your desires of eating and also some other desires, for example, doing some wrong stuff which you're not supposed to do during the normal daily routines. So it gives you a routine for in that aspect. So you're more focused uh, and fasting is a component in which you don't eat or drink anything from sunrise to sunset. Uber is a doctor and says he feels supported and respected during Ramadan by the people who work with him. Started 3.30, um, stopped my, start my fast uh, by 3.57. After 
the morning prayers. I slept uh, and then woke up at uh, 7 o'clock, got ready and went to work. I'm a physician. So in the meantime, other than morning prayers, uh, I offered my afternoon prayers, which is Zuhr prayer, and uh, hopefully we are going to do uh, evening prayer, which is Asr, and, um, and two more prayers, one after op starting, opening the fast and then at night time again. And Razia's day? Since I have all the energy in the morning, since I ate the food, so I try to prepare the iftar, which usually happens like later in the day. It's like 7.40 nowadays, that's the time of Maghrib. So that's when we start to eat. So I have, I prepare dinner and I prepare the iftar during like afternoon time. So it's just better that way. Then I go pick them up if they have soccer camp or anything and then do all my other duties that as a mom I have to do. But now, with friends gathered, they chat and wait for the sun to slip behind the mountain slope to the west. That time is coming, but for now, there's still a glowing orange sky. This part of the afternoon, spending time with friends, Wally says that's special. It's a very important part of Ramadan because you feel like you're not doing this by yourself. There are other people who know what you're going through and that are there to support you. Like a lot of other households, the women gravitate toward the kitchen to set up the potluck. The men and kids also clump in groups. Everyone is waiting, checking their watches. They haven't eaten since the fast began at about 4 a.m. With Ramadan in the summer this year, the sun doesn't go down until about 7.40 p.m. When it's finally time to break the fast, family friend Faisal Salim does a call to prayer, marking the end of the day. They eat a small plate of food to satiate. I have prepared something, it's like a fruit melody. So it's all fruits and um, like different fruits, um, bananas, apples, all mixed together, honeydew, all mixed together, and Pakistani spices and some sugar, and then it's just, it tastes good. And then there's something called lassi. Lassi is like a yogurt drink, uh, so you just put, you prepare it at home with yogurt, milk, and some water and sugar. So just to, uh, because it's so hot outside, so you definitely need something cool to cool down. And then um, we'll have something called samosas and then pakoras. And then there's a full meal. My friend uh, Sadia will be bringing some rice with chickpeas and then she's preparing some chicken stew. So it will be quite fun. I'm sure it feels good now. But between the snack and the meal, the prayers. After the guests check their compasses, they line up in rows, facing Mecca. Uber is in the front, leading the group. They all pray together just after sunset. You struggle the whole day, and at the end of the day, you are saying, you know, I did it for Allah, and uh, I look forward to be more uh, doing the same thing if required, or focusing on the prayers or be a good person the whole day and we can do the same thing uh, the rest of the days when, even when you're not fasting. So the goal is, um, other than fasting, if you can do charity, if you can do charity in that month, you should do charity. We are going to go to the Casa Maria. We make lunches for homeless people and then we also put it in boxes and give it to them. Also, we also contribute to, to needy people and especially refugees who can be helped and contribution, more contribution to the mosque because this month of Ramadan, are, if you do good deeds, they are multiplied uh, 
much more as compared to the regular month or when you are not fasting or you're not in Ramadan. And this family says it's important to them to help educate non-Muslims about their religion. I think there uh, not a lot of people are aware of what actual Islam is. So for them, it might be a different way of thinking, just whatever you get it from news and whatever you get it from other friends. So if they come directly to a Muslim, it's better to get a first-hand answer as to what Islam is. And the more people know, the more people are aware of it, it helps them realize that we are just regular human beings like everyone else. It feels good that um, our month people are seeing how we do our religion and so then people can know what we do. After the food, the kids' energy spikes and the night becomes a little more hectic. There's more giggling, louder voices. Uber says every night isn't quite like that after iftar. Normally most of the time in the evening when we are at home and the family is here and before iftar we recite Quran, the holy book. So, and we do that more and more during the month of Ramadan also. And most importantly, we feel good when the, all the kids are sitting on the table with us and we talk about that thing and different issues including the daytime. So it gives an opportunity for us to all to be on the table also. I look forward to having the time at the end to celebrate a lot and presents. Um, but also I get to spend a lot more time with my family. I am happy for it. After the pious and dutiful month of Ramadan ends, Eid al-Fitr is a time for celebration. It begins when the final day's fast is broken and officially continues for three more days. Uber says it's common to continue holding celebratory gatherings with friends and family for about two weeks. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Andrea Kelly. You can see the story that you just heard on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. It's been hot for a while now, but technically, summer just began this week. While many creatures work hard to stay out of the sun as much as possible, there is no rest for the diverse and persistent insect population of the desert. Justin O. Schmidt is an entomologist and author who follows the activities of our six- and eight-legged neighbors closely, especially the ones that carry armament. Schmidt's specialty is a group called Hymenoptera, that includes stinging ants, wasps, and bees. His first-hand research into the potency of these insects' defenses earned Schmidt the title of the King of Sting. I asked him to provide us with a sort of forecast of some of the bites and stings that we should be watching out for in the summer of 2017. This year, uh, we could have a good tick year. It's really hard to tell beforehand, but ticks like kind of grass, and if you get good rain, like we had wonderful fall and, and early winter rains and the grass grew nicely, what the ticks do is they crawl up on the top of the grass and as you're walking along, they kind of sense you. They can smell you and detect you by vibrations and odor primarily. And they climb onto you and the next thing you know, you know you're back home and something is by your waist or something where they are busy sucking away at you and say, hey, a tick, ick. But yeah, so we, we could have a good year especially in areas a little higher than Tucson. You go to the Santa Rita's or you go to the Huachuca's and look out, especially during the summer monsoon season. 
Do you have any advice on the best way, if you find yourself attacked by a tick, to remove it? Yeah, the, what I do is is take the best kind of tweezers that you can get, and you have to look carefully at the tick. It's going in usually at an angle, and you want to pull it out the direct way that it's pointing in. If you go the opposite way, you may break off the stylet, which is not good. Then you have this thing in your skin that you have to dig out. But if you just pull gently, don't don't get all you know hyper excited. Just grab a hold of it as close to that base and just slowly tug and tug and tug and finally it'll pop out. It kind of looks like a, a rasp. It has backward facing spines. So they're gripping on very viciously. And if you just pull long enough and hard enough, it'll pop out and then you can squash it or bring it in or whatever you want to do with it. <laughs> Don't eat it though. Okay, good advice. Um, anecdotally, it seems like bees are being really busy this time of year. I've heard from several people who have had incursions in their yards or even um, perhaps uh, through a, a hole in the stucco on the outside of their house, something like that. So tell us a little bit about the bee behavior that you're seeing right now. Yeah, the, the honeybees that we have in southern Arizona, they're, they're all Africanized bees at this stage, all the feral ones. And yes, they've had a really good season. Again, you are what you eat, and bees eat flowers, well, specifically the nectar and the pollen from flowers. And again, this fall and early winter rains made a wonderful bloom of little small ephemerals, the little things that are just knee-high at most. And, and these are wonderful for starting the bees. So they tank up on those, they start multiplying, they get a lot more population. And then the old reliables come about now or a little bit earlier, the creosote bush, the paleoverdes, the mesquites. And so, yes, that means this year has been a pretty good uh, good in, in terms of the bees' point of view. Perhaps in the homeowners or the person's point of view, it's not so good. But it's been a, a quite an active year and keeping a lot of people busy and on their toes. Yeah, one of our volunteers told me yesterday that her husband was washing dishes and became aware of hearing a, a, a swarm nearby and uh, went outside. And sure enough, they were starting to um, go in through some holes by the electrical work on the uh, mm, patio. Yeah, that's bad news. I usually tell people before this season, late March, and you get a nice day and it's really pleasant to be outside and you're not cooking, you're not freezing. Go and look around your house and wherever any pipes, electrical things, anything goes into your house, they usually auger a hole that's about twice as big as the pipe that goes through it. In the short term, you can just stuff steel wool or something like that and bees can't deal with that. Plug it up so they can't get in because if you can get a pencil into an open hole, the bees can get in. And I've actually seen them as small as that where bees have a one-way traffic. One bee comes in, one bee comes out, and they'll take those places. You don't want them in the walls of your house. Not fun. If you are the subject of a bee incursion, you should contact a specialist, someone who can deal with the problem directly. Exactly. I grew up in the Northeast, and a lot of people are here that came from the Northwest or the Midwest. And, ah, we had yellow jackets, and you know we can deal with yellow jackets or paper wash. They're pretty easy. Wrong when it comes to honeybees. First of all, honeybees are about 10 or 20 times more of them. And second of all, their comb is wax. So whatever insecticides and things you try to put in there can't get through the wax. And so they're kind of hiding behind in some of the combs. Meanwhile, they're getting really riled up and unhappy with what you did. And unless you have a $150 bee suit and know what you're doing, you're going to be in, in real trouble. And so I tell people, don't just assume, you know, you can solve this yourself. That's a bad idea. You know, get get a professional because bees really can be dangerous if you... 
you don't really know what you're doing. People have heard of kissing bugs, and unless you've had an encounter with one, though, you may not really realize what the kind of damage they can do. Um, a friend of mine was just telling me about uh, suffering some really bad bites on his chest that took a long time to heal. So what can you tell us about kissing bugs and, and the threat that they're possibly posing this summer? One of the newer problems that we have or we're worried about are kissing bugs. We all know about bed bugs, and they're kind of a scourge and really unpleasant. A lot of people don't know about kissing bugs, and kissing bugs are great big, mostly blackish, sometimes a little bit of red chevrons along their sides. They range from about two-thirds of an inch to, oh, say, an inch and a half. And there's three main species of them. What they do is they're blood feeders, and they can take quite a lot of blood out of you, you know, by quite a lot, and, you know, maybe a fifth of a teaspoon or something like that, which is, you know, compared to what a mosquito takes, quite a lot. And the main concern that we have is, besides being downright unappetizing, and, and, you know, I love insects, but I have a hard time really struggling to find them to be beautiful. But besides the aesthetics factor and the ick factor, they cause serious allergies in a number of people. And even myself, I, I'm not allergic to them. I get this intense itching. It'll kind of wake you up in the middle of the night and you're just scratching. Oh, it just feels so good, but it hurts and it itches and it makes these big welts and you can get allergic reactions. There's actually a person that died of an allergic reaction in Phoenix a couple of years back. Those are very rare, but you know, any allergic reaction is something you don't want. That's the immediate concern that most of us have. The long distance concern, which is what what I'm working on and, and the team at, at the University Hospital, we're trying to uh, determine they transmit Chagas disease, which kills 30, 40,000 people a year in Latin America mostly. And Chagas disease is awful, chronic sort of wasting disease. You can get it for 20 or 30 years and usually your heart enlarges or your intestinal system does and it's just really a miserable th sort of thing and about 10% of the people will actually die of this thing. Now, the good news is we don't have it. The bad news is they're in Mexico and not that far south of here. And our bugs have the uh, trypanosome. That's the, the parasite that's, that's in the kissing bug. And so they, they should be infectious. The reason we don't get it is you get the disease by rubbing the feces. They, they unlike most things, go through the saliva and mosquito diseases. They inject them into you. These, they don't do it, but they will often defecate near you know, your wound, and if you're scratching and you happen to scratch, you know, you're asleep, you don't know what you're doing, at least I don't, and you're busy rubbing away and you're scratching this wound and you get to blood. If you get some of these feces in there, then you can get the disease. My guest was University of Arizona entomologist Justin O. Schmidt. His book about experiencing the bites and stings of more than 80 different insects is called The Sting of the Wild, the story of the man who got stung for science published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Author and wildlife illustrator Beth Serdit listens to ravens and has paddled with alligators in wild and scenic places. Recently, in midtown Tucson, she had a surprisingly intimate encounter with one of the fastest sprinters in the desert. I was standing in the drugstore 
when I felt a roundish, unidentifiable lump inside the upper leg of my jeans. Maybe a crumpled shopping list that had somehow migrated from my pocket? I shook my leg, but whatever it was stayed put. As I walked, it slid down a bit, and I felt something sharp. Maybe a cactus spine? So I didn't press on it. I walked outside, sat down in the driver's seat, and that's when I felt tiny claws skedaddling sideways around the front of my thigh. Whatever it was didn't head south towards the looser end of my pants leg, so I put my hand over the thing, which immediately stopped, and I felt the outline of a lizard. Certified nature girl that I am, I was curious to see if I could figure out what kind of lizard it was by gently tracing the shape of its head and body through the material of my jeans. Hmm, slender body, long pronounced head, maybe a zebra-tailed lizard? And then it squirmed, wriggling rapidly on my thigh, heading for parts most of us consider private. I am not a squealer. Those panic sounds bouncing around the car must have come from someone else, except I was alone with a non-vocalizing reptile. I put my hand on the inside of my leg next to the lizard, forming a wall, hoping I wasn't squishing delicate and markedly long toes. The squirming stopped, and I said out loud, Beth, stay calm. You have a harmless lizard in your pants. This must happen to people all the time. I thought it was a desert dweller's rite of passage. Here's an existential question. Would you rather find a live lizard in your pants or a dead one? I vote for life. So, since the busy parking lot didn't seem like a safe place for a lizard, nor an appropriate place to drop my pants, I started the car and headed home. Ten minutes later, I parked, leaped out of the car, kind of like Quasimodo, since I still had my hand clamped to my thigh, opened the rear door, and grabbed a blanket. Now having to use both hands, I wrapped it around me and dropped my pants in the parking area I share with my neighbors. I picked up my pants, shook them, turned them inside out. The lizard had taken off into the dusk without my ever seeing it. I walked into the bedroom where my jeans had been on a chair before I put them on to go shopping. On the floor, next to the chair, lay the end of a tail with two distinct black bars highlighted by three white ones, confirming my deductions that I had done errands with the fastest lizard in the desert. The Latin name for zebra-tailed lizards is Calosaurus draconoides, which translates as beautiful lizard that looks like a dragon. Adults average around two and a half to three inches, not including their thickly striped and tapered tails, which are at least as long as their bodies. Although this speedy species is not deeply studied, they're hard to noose, according to University of Arizona wildlife biologist Matt Good. I did find research collected primarily in the 1960s and early 70s. These sprinters have been clocked at an average speed of 23 feet per second. 
Their legs are significantly longer than other North American desert lizards, and they can actually run bipedally, upright on their hind legs. Tolerating hotter temperatures than other lizards, they can lift up their toes, quickly shifting stance, the way we do when we're hopping barefoot on hot surfaces. They like open spaces and sandy soil to dig in, where, starting in June, they lay clutches of two to eight eggs. During July to November, hatchlings emerge. Like many of the local whip-tailed and spiny lizards that I've named Stumpy, these elegant little dragons can confound predators by losing their tails and growing new ones. Coloration viewed from above melds into the desert, but the tail's underside is especially visible when lifted up and purposely waved. In the 1940s, the geometric pattern and color earned them the name gridiron lizards, and the tail wagging gave them the Spanish name perrito, little dog. Often, that gentle motion, which reminds me of sea anemones in the water, is the first thing that alerts me to their presence. One theory is that they are deliberately inviting predators to attack the tail so the rest of the lizard can escape. Another is a catch-me-if-you-can signal of alertness, which, considering their speed, well, if I were a gambler, I'd bet on the lizard. The hunting habits of these generalized insect eaters, who also indulge in plants, is to stand and wait with back legs bent and splayed in what ballet dancers will recognize as a second position plie. The front legs are almost straightened, propping the body upright so that the lizard has a good view and is ready for takeoff. If male, that stance shows females his bright turquoise blue markings around two black bars on his sides and yellow highlights on his lower torso. These colors intensify during breeding season with orange on the throat, most visible when he puffs out his dewlap, a pouch under his chin. Much of their underbellies are varying shades of white, as is the area under the chin, which is decorated with thin charcoal-colored diagonal stripes that look like they were applied with a fine brush. A protective lacy fringe surrounds the eyes, and the entire skin is a topographical wonderland of raised designs. Although I've lived around zebra-tailed lizards for two years, I didn't get to see those details the night a lizard ran around in my pants. But there was a happy ending. We both survived, and that lizard has one heck of a story to tell. You can find Beth Sertit's illustration of a zebra-tailed lizard, along with a photo of the tail the lizard left behind, on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. And if you have any stories of a lizard hiding in your clothing, we'd like to hear about it. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you.